0: So let's look at Daniel chapter 5. Now before we dive in, let me just give you a little background here. Seventy years have now passed since Daniel chapter 1, since the the people of Judah were taken captive. Seventy years has gone by now. Forty years has passed since this moment uh, that we talked about last week in Daniel chapter 4, the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. And 23 years have now passed since Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. All right, now it's 539 B.C., but in between those two dates, three more kings took the throne. That's a crazy story all in itself. you got brothers assassinating brothers and all kinds of mess, all right? But eventually, Nebuchadnezzar takes the throne. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar is the last king on record in the historical books of Babylon, all right? He's the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. He married the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. Her name was Nitocris. And he's de- deeply devoted to this moon god. Now, ironically, the moon god that Nebuchadnezzar worships is called Sin, which I thought that was perfect. And so that's the, the, the god that Nebuchadnezzar worships. Now, this god of Sin, this moon god, is, is, is an interesting part because, see, here's the thing. Most of the people in Babylon worshipped another god called Marduk or another god called Bel. In fact, they had that big temple I told you about last week, 60 million bricks to this temple called Marduk, this god that they worship. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is king now, and he doesn't worship that god. So the people of Babylon are not too fond of their new, new king, Nebuchadnezzar. And because of that, he spends a lot of time outside of the city of Babylon going on his little spiritual journeys chasing after this moon god sin. Well, because he's doing that, he kind of needed a co-regent in town to really act as the king over Babylon, And so his oldest son, who was named Belshazzar, he's the one who who he names as his co-regent to take his place in his absence. And so Belshazzar begins to reign alongside of his father in 553 B.C. All right? Now, Belshazzar is a very interesting person in history. He's kind of the forgotten king that never existed according to the historical books of Babylon. All right? He's not mentioned anywhere. And so because of this, many scholars and skeptics claim that the book of Daniel uh, was false and historically inaccurate. But it's actually just the opposite. And everything changed in 1853. Because before that time, everybody thought, well, oh, the, the book of Daniel is just a fictional history. And this part, oh, they just made this up. No, actually the Bible is more accurate than any of the historians could ever realize, and archaeologists proved it. In 1853, archaeologists uncovered the cylinders of Nebonitis and the chronicles of Nebonitis. In fact, I've got a little picture of what it looks like. These artifacts actually verified that Belshazzar is the oldest son and the co-regent of Babylon. So once again... We see that the truth of God's Word is vindicated. The Bible, time and time again, proves itself to be right in every way. Whether it's something historical or archaeological, the more things that are found, the more they underline the truth of Scripture. And you can rest assured with this. The Bible is correct regardless of whether ruins or artifacts are unearthed or not. And like one scholar said, it's not so much that archaeology proves the Bible is correct, but that the Bible proves that archaeology is correct. And my buddy, Juan Dugan, said this. He he texted this to me the other night, and I loved it. He said, all throughout modern history, so-called experts have been trying to discredit the Bible by saying it doesn't match up with what we know, only to find out later the problem was with our lack of knowledge, not a flaw in the Bible. The Bible is the word of God, and anyone arguing against the history of the Bible will inevitably find out that God's wisdom and accuracy is unrivaled and that it is our limited understanding of history that should be challenged, not the Bible itself. And I totally agree with that. The Bible proves itself over and over and over again. So Belshazzar, has been this co-regent alongside of his father, Nebonitis, for about 14 years now. And that's when we get... To this story in Daniel chapter 5. Now, before we look at Daniel chapter 5, I just want to remind you of something. Jeremiah, the prophet that God used to foretell all the things that were going to happen to the people of Judah in, uh, in Babylon, he foretold the 70 years of captivity and, and all these kind of things. Listen to this 100 years before 539 BC, 100 years before any of this took place in Daniel chapter 5. Listen to the words of Jeremiah. He says, The Lord gave Jeremiah the prophet this message concerning Babylon and the land of the Babylonians. This is what the Lord said. Tell the whole world and keep nothing back. Raise a signal flag to tell everyone that Babylon will fall. Her images and idols will be shattered. Her gods, Bel and Marduk will be utterly disgraced. For a nation will attack her from the north and bring such destruction that no one will live there again. Everything will be gone. Both people and animals will flee. Now this was a hundred years before this takes place. Now go to Daniel chapter 5 and let's read. First of all, I wanted you to see the Feast of Belshazzar. Verse 1, Belshazzar the king. Okay, stop there. (laughs) Belshazzar was a wicked man. He lives off the riches gained by his father and grandfather. He's the epitome of what we would call a rich, spoiled brat. He takes whatever he wants, throws away whatever he doesn't want, spends as much money as he wants, and basically lives out his days as a worthless monarch. He's occupying a throne that he didn't earn, and he doesn't even respect. So, in an effort to instill confidence in his people and in his court, he throws a New Year's party in the autumn of 539 B.C., which would actually equal October 11th or 12th for you and me, and he's having this party praising their gods, the god of Marduk, the god of Bel, and he's throwing this party despite the fact that outside the walls of the city for the last four months, they've been under siege by the Medes and the Persians, It's been going on for four months. And in just sort of a state of denial, Belshazzar is just inside the castle walls partying the night away. So here we are. And Belshazzar has made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And then verse 2 says, and while he tasted the wine, that word tasted is actually an Aramaic word that literally means guzzled. While he was guzzling the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple and which had been in Jerusalem that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, the term father says his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Just know that in the Aramaic and in the Hebrew, there is no term for grandfather in those languages. So even though Nebuchadnezzar was technically his grandfather, he's referred to as his father here in Scripture. So this little act of bringing out the gold and silver vessels from the treasuries of Nebuchadnezzar and drinking from them was a total act of desecration and sacrilege. He's taunting Yahweh, the holy God of Israel, with this act. And he's committing this blasphemous act to show that his pagan gods are superior to the living God. And furthermore, he probably sent Jewish slaves to go and gather the vessels. Now, can you just imagine the heartache they must have felt as they're watching all this happen with the very vessels that were used in the temple of Solomon to praise the living God? See, this was an attempt by Belshazzar to openly defy a living and holy God. Now, verse 3, they bring out the vessels, and they begin to drink from them, it says. And then in verse 4, it says they drank wine, and they praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. And by the way, this is still happening. As a society, we still praise the gods of gold and silver, don't we? So here we are. It's 539 B.C. Belshazzar is living it up. And it's believed that he was in the very throne room that I mentioned to you last week, that throne room that was, has been uncovered by archaeologists, 170 feet long, uh, 56 feet wide. And they're in this room, and it's even discovered that the walls were covered in plaster. That's very important. You'll find out in just a moment. And I picture Belshazzar just raising a toast to the power of Babylon and the gods Marduk, Bel and the others. And even though they know the the Medes and the Persians have surrounded their city, Belshazzar has no fear because he's in the most secure city in the world, right? The walls are amazing. There's There's no way you can get in this city. And plus, the river Euphrates flows right through the middle of town, and so they've got enough food and rations and supplies and water to literally last 20 years. So he's got no worries, Again, hear the warning of the prophet Jeremiah long before any of this happened. Jeremiah chapter 51. I will make her officials and wise men drunk, along with her captains, officers, and warriors, and they will fall asleep and never wake up again, says the king, whose name is the Lord of heaven's armies. And so the party rages on throughout the night. And what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon Over a thousand people. The music is thumping. The girls are everywhere. Everybody's dancing and getting drunk on cheap wine. And it's even more fun now because they've added another naughty little element to the deal. They're all drinking out of the gold and silver cups from the holy temple of Jerusalem. And it's an embarrassing slap in the face to the servants in the room who were most likely Jewish. The 70 years of captivity were still happening. The people of Judah and Israel were still their slaves. And can't you just see it getting crazier and crazier as the night grows longer? the drinks, the debauchery, the defiance as they sloshed down their wine and laughed in the face of the Jewish slaves. For they were citizens of the great Babylon, the undefeatable, unbelievable, high and mighty and rich and prosperous Babylon. Nothing and no one could defeat him. We're invincible, they said. We're unconquerable, they said. We are Babylon, the great, we are. God said, enough is enough. Verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, and then the king's countenance changed. Boy, I'll say. And his thoughts troubled him, you better believe it, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. The music is stopped, the dancing stopped, the drinking stopped, and suddenly the king is quite sober and literally shaking in his sandals. You see, Belshazzar has just run into the wrath of God. And he's going to lose. Proverbs 29.1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. This is where our saying, the writing on the wall, comes from. This is where the saying, and his knees knocked together, comes from. It all comes from this chapter in Daniel. So we've seen the feast of Belshazzar. We just witnessed the fingers of God. Now let me tell you a little bit about the failure of the wise men. So Belshazzar does what Nebuchadnezzar did. I don't know why they keep doing this, but he calls for the soothsayers and the astrologers and all the wise people who apparently aren't very good at their job because they're 0 for 2 and they're about to be 0 for 3. These guys don't know what they're talking about. He calls them all together. He says, tell me what this means. If you can tell me, then I'm going to put a robe on your back. I'm going to put a gold necklace around your chain. You can be the third ruler in the country. Third ruler, why? Well, because his father was the king and he's the co-regent. He can't give somebody the second place. He's holding the second place. So that's why he calls them. They can be the third ruler. Well, they can't tell him what it means. And then he brings in the queen, and and, and the queen is the queen mother. It's probably not the wife of Belshazzar. Rather, it's probably his mom, Nidocris, who was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, or it might have been even possibly the very wife of Nebuchadnezzar herself. She would have been very old at this time. But she's the one who says, look, none of you guys can figure this out, but there's a man in this kingdom. His name is Daniel. We called him Belteshazzar. He can help you. Let's get him in the room. And so, verse 13, we see the fearlessness of Daniel. And they bring Daniel in, and he's brought before the king. Now, Daniel's probably 82 years old by this time. And he's not been invited to the party, nor would he have participated. He's no longer the chief wise man. He's no longer a regent. He's just there serving in some capacity, and we don't even know what. But the king doesn't know him like his grandfather knew him. So the king speaks to Daniel, and he says, Are you that Daniel who's one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And I might just add this, still. Y'all, he's been in this country for over 70 years. He's been part of this whole nation, part of the captives for 70 years. And he still has this testimony right here. What a testimony, huh? I mean, listen, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can still serve Jesus. You can still have a powerful testimony about your life. Let God use you wherever he has planted you. And if you're getting older, don't let age be a deterrent to your service to the Lord. I mean, look at the Bible. God used old and young alike. God can use you. Daniel remained steadfast and faithful all these years, and that's incredibly inspiring to me, and it should be inspirational to you as well. He's the picture of faithfulness, and God continued to use him because of it. I found a quote this week I'm going to give you. I want you to remember this quote by Edwin It's Simply this, it says, Your faithfulness makes you trustworthy to God. Your faithfulness makes you trustworthy to God. Now, verses 15 through 20 well 21 we see what happens here the king begins to talk to Daniel he says look I brought in all the wise men they can't tell me what it means and then Daniel enters and says well look I'll do it and then the king says well if you can tell me then I'll give you a gold chain and a purple robe and I'll make you the..." and Daniel says no no, no you, you can you can keep all that <laughs> you just get the feeling Daniel's not a real big fan of Belshazzar in fact Daniel just sort of says no you can have it in fact I'm going to give you this for free big boy and so he just starts telling him the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. And he starts reminding him all the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar went through, how great he was, and then how God humbled him and broke him. And verse 21 says, Until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints it over whomever he chooses. That's a, very, that's a direct quote from the last chapter. But then look at verse 22. He says, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought in these vessels and you've been drinking with your concubines and your wives and your people. And then look at the end of verse 23. This is the most powerful part of this chapter to me. He says, and you're worshiping these gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which don't even see. They can't even hear. They don't even know anything. You're worshiping idols and stuff. And the God who holds your breath in his hands and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. I mean, Daniel just blisters this king right in front of everybody. What an indictment against the king and against all of us, really, who fail to worship the Lord. I got to remind you here something, folks. Worship is not an option for the children of God. It's a commandment. In fact, it's the greatest commandment. To love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind is the commandment to worship Him and to not place any other gods before Him, whether it's a physical item like stone or rock or a person or a hobby or whatever it might be. I was in a worship conference a couple years back, and it was interesting because I, I was... I was on the platform with two of people that I consider my heroes. One was Israel Houghton, and we sing a lot of his songs, and then another one was Darlene Cech. And I never met Darlene Check before, and she's got this cool uh, African, uh, you know, what is it, the Australian accent, and I, I don't know how to do an Australian accent, so I won't even try it because I, I'm sure I'll mess it up. But anyway, she says, uh, she's over on the sideline, and, and I did my little set and everything, and I come off the platform, and Darlene is standing there, and I, and I was just so thrilled to meet her because, you know, she wrote Shout to the Lord and all these big old huge songs, and we do tons of these songs. So she's like an icon, Right. And I come off the platform, and she's very kind. She says, "You know, that was a great set. I really enjoyed it. I was just over here praising the Lord." And I said, "Well, thank you very much. Uh, could you sign my Bible or something, you know?" And so then I said, um, "I said, hey, before you go on, can any words of advice for me?" And she said, um, "Yeah." I was like, <laughs> "You know, you, you kind of sometimes you ask those things not expecting to hear anything." Um, she said, "Yeah, I've got, I've got some advice for you." I said, "What?" She said, don't give him a choice. I said, what? What, what do you mean? She said, don't give him a choice. I said, can you explain that? She said, when you're leading worship, it's almost like you're giving people a choice whether or not they want to praise the Lord. She said, we're his children. He's our king. We have no choice but to worship the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So don't give him a choice. It's not a choice. It's a commandment. That changed the way I view all of this. It really did. And why wouldn't we want to worship him? I mean, he's the giver of life. He holds our breath in his hands. As we sing, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise to you only. Great are you, Lord. So what do these words mean? Well, three different words. Many, many, tekel, you farson, or as I put on the screen, because I believe it's the better translation, praise, praise three words that are all have to do with denominations of money. In our language, it would almost be like saying dollar, dollar, quarter, nickel. Now, if I was to put that on the screen, everybody in the room would be like, okay. And that's what they were like. They, they, they could read it, but there was no vowels, and there was a good chance that they weren't even written left to right. In fact, it was probably written right to left. I didn't want to do that because I knew it would freak you out. You know, it took out the vows, too. but uh, So there's no vows. It's written right to left, and it might have been horizontal, might have been in a circle. We're not sure. All we know is they're looking at this, and they can tell what the letters are, but they don't know what it means. Well, let me tell you what it means, and this is what Daniel told them what it means. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom. He's finished it. Many means your days are numbered. And you know what? All of our days are numbered. God has determined for each of us how long we live. And you're invincible until that day, right? He's in control. And he allows us to choose how we live out those days that he's appointed for us. Look at one thirty-nine, Psalm one thirty-nine, verse sixteen. It says, "This your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me, as yet there were none of them." In other words, before you were born, God had already had your lifespan planned, and from the moment you were born, you started to die. And that's some good news for this morning, huh? But it's true. So we count our days going forward. God counts our days going backwards. And each one of us has 86,400 seconds per day in which we can either choose to serve God or serve ourselves. So God counts our numbers backwards, and he knows exactly how many days you have left. Now, let me ask you something. If you knew how many days you had left, what would change in your life? What would you do different? What decisions would you make today that you shouldn't hold off until tomorrow, huh? That'll change how you think, won't it? Psalm 90, verse 12, says this. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Well, this is not what Belshazzar was doing, was it? Instead, he squandered his days and he's frittered away the opportunity to change a nation. And so God has found him wanting which is the meaning of the next word. Your days are numbered, and then tekel. You've been found weighed in the balance and found wanting. Tekel means to the kingdom of Babylon that it had been weighed and found too light. Lacking in value, and Babylon had failed to meet God's standard. They were overdrawn, and their account was empty and owing. Now, I don't want you to confuse this with Islam, which says that at the end of your life, your deeds will be weighed, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll reap eternal rewards. That's not what the Bible is speaking of at all. No, rather, we are all like the kingdom of Babylon, and we're all found wanting. And because we're all sinners, there's no amount of good deeds that can tip the scales in our favor. That's why we're so desperate for the grace of Jesus. You see, when he suffered and he died on the cross, he took the weight of our sin on his shoulders, and he bore our guilt and our shame, and now it's him who bears the load for us, and we can have an eternal home in heaven, not because our deeds have outnumbered our bad deeds, but rather because Jesus knocked over those scales with the power of his resurrection. Jesus paid it all, and that's the best news I can give you today. (laughs) Teko, you've been found wanting. You've been found wanting, you pagans of Babylon. Now, the third word was Paris. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and and the Persians. Notice that's in present tense. It's already happened, it's all over. Nebuchadnezzar got 12 months. Remember that? After his dream, he had 12 months to think about it and repent. He didn't. And then for seven more years, he was grazing in the fields like a cow. And God saved him. That's not going to happen here. God says, no, you're finished. Verse 29, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a gold chain around him meg and made a proclamation concerning that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. So he gives all these rewards to Daniel because Daniel has explained to them what all these words mean. But Belshazzar has the same problem as Nebuchadnezzar. His problem was pride. And God gave uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's attention in a big way. He, he grabbed his attention and he gave them those seven years, but he's dealing with Belshazzar in a totally different way. Belshazzar is, is not just prideful, he's, he's wasteful and he's a, a drunkard and a womanizer and he's out of control and he's blasphemous and his heart is hardened and he has a serious, serious soul problem. And you and I, when we're born, we all do. See, Belshazzar chased after the lust of his flesh and didn't take care of his soul. And every one of us have this tendency in our lives. See how is how it works. John Ortberg, in his wonderful little book, Soul Keeping, if you don't have that book, please, please get that book. It will just bless you. And in his book, Soul Keeping, he explains this in great detail. But I want to give you the four elements that are all in, in all of our lives that we must take care of. All right, there's four areas in our lives that we have to take care of. The first one is the will. All right, every one of us have will, all right? Now, that's your capacity to choose. The will gives you the ability to say yes or no, and it makes you a, a person and not a thing, right? Your will is your intentions. I love what Dallas Willard said. He said, the will is very good at making simple and large commitments like getting married, but it's very bad at trying to override habits and patterns and attitudes that are deeply rooted in all of us. Our willpower has its limit, and if you don't believe me, then this afternoon when somebody presents you some dessert after lunch, you're going to have a battle of the will right then and there. This goes on all day long, right? So willpower only gets us so far because our wills always want to get their way, all right? So there's the will, but we also all have minds. Every one of us have a will. Every one of us have a mind. And our minds includes not just what, how we think, but it's all of our thoughts and our feelings, all right? This is all the ways in which we are conscious of things. And, and did you know that the average person has over 10,000 thoughts a day? I mean, that's a thought in itself, to think that we have 10,000 thoughts, all right? And that's over 3.5 million thoughts a year. That's over 300 million thoughts in a lifetime, right? And our thoughts are what determine our actions, But most of all, you know what the mind craves? The mind craves to be at peace. So the will wants its way. The mind wants to be at peace. Oh, but then we got this other thing called a body. And Dallas Willard said the body is our little kingdom. And that's the one place in all the universe where our tiny wills have a chance to be in charge. The body is where the will and the mind get to play things out. It's your habits, your movements, your appetites, your desires. And you know what our bodies crave more than anything? Pleasure. So our our, our wills want to get their way. Our mind wants to be at peace, and our bodies crave pleasure. And you can just see that within those three things, there's going to be a constant war going on. And that's why it's so important that we give the most attention to the last part, our souls. Our souls. Interestingly enough most of us spend a great deal of time craving into the to the to the to the to, to the ways of our will a lot of us spend many many years forming and shaping our thoughts and our minds and how we think about things because we go to school for dozens of years some of us but at least 12 for all of us and then there's the body i mean i don't know about you i spent several hours in the gym this week i know you can't tell it but i did problem is I spend all the hours in the gym and then I have no will to control what I eat. I'm a confused soul. (laughs) He said, amen. So the soul is the part of you that has the capacity to integrate all the parts into a single whole life. The soul seeks harmony and connection and integration. The human soul seeks to integrate our will, our mind, and our body into being an integral person. See, that's what it means to be a person of integrity. It means you have a whole life. You are whole as a person. So the soul is the deepest part of you. It is your whole self. And if you don't take care of it first and, and instead allow our wills to weaken and our minds to darken and our, and our bodies to follow our natural desires, then eventually we begin to disintegrate from within. Now, you know what causes us to disintegrate quicker than anything? Sin. Sin. So our souls are healthy when there is harmony between these three entities, the will, the mind, and the body. Harmony and wholeness happens when we are connected with God. And then and only then are we able to control the unhealthy appetites of our will, our minds, and our bodies, because we're being directed by something greater than us, the Holy Spirit. And it is then that we will have a healthy soul. Now, I think the best example of this comes in John Ortbrook's prologue to this little book, Soul Keeping. Now, don't worry, we haven't left Belshazzar. I'm coming back around, all right? But let me just give you a little quick story called The Story of the Keeper of the River. There once was a town in the high Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful river. The river was fed by strings that were old as the earth and deep as the sea. The water was clear like crystal. Children played beside it. Swans and geese, they swam in it. And you could see the rocks and the sand. The water was crystal clear. And high in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as the keeper of the river. And he'd been hired so long ago that no one could even remember a time when he wasn't there. He'd travel from one spring to another, and and he would remove branches and fallen leaves and debris that might pollute the water. And he kept those streams clean that was feeding the river. And yet his work was unseen. Well, one year, the town council decided that they had better things to do with their money, and so no one supervised the old man anyway and, and They had roads to repair and taxes to collect and serf- services to offer, and giving money to an unseen river keeper had become kind of a luxury that they just didn 't feel like they could afford anymore, and so they let him go. The old man leaves his post, and high in the mountains, the springs went uninten- untended, twigs and branches began to muddy the the liquid flow. And mud and silt compacted the riverbed, and farm waste turned parts of the river into stagnant bogs. And for a time, no one in the village really even noticed. But after a while, the water was not the same. It began to look brackish. The swans had flown away and were living elsewhere. The water no longer had a crisp scent that drew the children to play in it. And some people in town even began to grow ill. And everybody noticed the loss of sparkling beauty that used to flow between the banks of the river that fed the town. See, the life of the village depended on the river, and the life of the river depended on its keeper. Now let's look at verse 30, chapter 5, the fall of Babylon. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Notice there's no mention of a battle, no mention of a war. Yet all the while, even at the very moment Belshazzar and his thousand guests were partying the night away, their enemies had entered the city. Now, how on earth did this happen? (laughs) Well, you have to look and dig a little bit through history. And two historians, Herodotus and Xenophon, tell you a detailed account of what happened that night that caused the entire kingdom of Babylon to fall. Now, you already know about the walls. They're way too tall. They're way too thick. You cannot batter these walls. 90 feet tall, in some cases, Herodotus says they were 387 feet tall. I don't know how tall they were, but anywhere between 90 feet and 387 feet is a big old honking wall, right? Right? 25 feet wide, there's an outer wall, inner wall, 40 feet between, which really made the walls almost 90 feet thick. So you can't get in through these walls. And by the way, they went 35 feet into the ground. You can't go under them. You can't go over them. You can't go through them. The walls are not the way into the city. So how on earth did Darius the Mean, who, by the way, was the governor under Cyrus, the leader of the Medes, and Cyrus was the king of the Persian, he leads his army to the city to take out King Belshazzar in one night without a battle. How did he do it? Well, it all has to do with the river. I told you before that the Euphrates River flowed diagonally through the center of the city, right? Babylon's located about 59 south of modern-day Baghdad. And the army of Cyrus was encamped all around Babylon. And Cyrus, who was a brilliant tactician, comes up with this amazing plan. See, he realized that since they couldn't get through the walls or over them, he would take the best men from his army and divide them into three sections— One section would be stationed where the river enters the city. One section would be stationed where the river exits the city. And then the rest of his army would stay with him. And what they would do is they would go upriver, far enough not to be seen, and they would build a series of trenches along the riverbanks and then blockade them until the right moment came. Alright, well, early in the day, they already know that this is going to be a great festival happening in in the city of Babylon. They already know what's going to happen that night. So early on this fateful day, either October 11th or October 12th, the 539 B.C., knowing that the entire city would be in revelry and celebration that night, Cyrus had his men lift the dams that were blocking those trenches from the water banks, from the river banks. And suddenly a massive amount of water begins to flow into the trenches and away from the city into a swampy area outside the south end of the city, thus lowering the water level ever so slowly, the water level that was flowing into the city. So the water's been diverted. The the river is slowly receding. And over the next several hours, the river waters receded enough to where the men encamped at both ends of the city could literally just wade right through the river and into the city undetected. They would merely dip into the water, go underneath the iron gates, and walk right in. One at a time, slowly, unnoticed, the entire army entered the city of Babylon. Meanwhile, the entire city is celebrating the festivals of their pagan gods. They're all half drunk. They failed to notice the river levels had lowered, and they didn't even recognize the strangers walking among them. And on that night, when most of the city was drunk with their celebration, Darius the Mede and the army of Cyrus the Great literally took the city without a fight. And they walked into the throne room, and they killed Belshazzar and all of his party guests. And just like that, the kingdom of Babylon had fallen. The fall came suddenly, but it was slow and steady receding of the river that allowed the enemy to creep in undetected. Now, folks, I can think of no picture in the Old Testament more powerful than this one that shows so vividly what happens when we fail to take care of our souls. You see, in their arrogance, the Babylonians believed their city to be invincible, they didn't take care of the river. They took their eyes off the one thing that brought them life. They let down their guard and allowed the enemy to infiltrate the, the heart of this city and notice. And before they could do anything about it, their empire was taken. And that's exactly how sin works in our lives. Y'all, it's not a, a, a typically a, a massive battle or, or a one-time thing. No, no, no. It's step by step little by little, a lowering of the guard. Not all the way, just a little bit at a time. And our values and our convictions and our principles slowly recede away from godliness, and then we look up, and suddenly we realize we've fallen, a slave to the enemy, a slave to our own desires, a slave to sin. Oh, folks, we need to heed the warning of Proverbs chapter 4. Above all else, guard your heart For everything you do flows from it. Keep your water, your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. Oh, folks, that's quite a warning for us this morning. In other words, take care of your soul. But here's the best news. If you've fallen today and you feel like you haven't taken care of your souls, good news. We worship the God of a second chance. And you don't have to stay this way. Listen to the end of the story of the keeper of the river. See, what happened is they realized that the river was now dirty and nothing was happening and they couldn't keep it clean. And and that was illness in town and everything else. You know what they did? They did a very smart thing. They rehired the old man. And the old man began to go up into those mountains, and he began to clear out those streams. And eventually, over time, the water was clean again. The birds returned. The kids played in the river again. Illness was replaced by health, and the village came back to life. The life of the village depended on the health of the river. Now, here's the illustration. And if you don't hear another thing I say all day, please don't miss this. The river is your soul, and you are its keeper. The river is your soul, and you are its keeper. You see, because of the cross, there's a chance to make things right. Because of the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, you can make things right today. Jesus was the, the only one who can save you. So let me ask you this morning, has God weighed your life and your decisions and found you wanting? Well, turn to Jesus before it's too late. Repent. Let him renew you, refresh you, revive you. And I love what the old hymn writer Horatio Spafford said when he wrote that classic hymn, It is well with my soul, having lost everything in his life. Everything. He asked the the ship captain as he was crossing the Atlantic to go find his wife after he'd lost his four daughters in a shipwreck, after he'd lost his business, after he'd lost his home in the fire of Chicago. Horatio Spafford was down to nothing. And as they passed over the waters where that ship had wrecked and he had lost his daughters, he asked the captain of the ship to notify him, and so the captain did. And as they passed over that area, Horatio Spafford sat down and wrote these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, It is well with my soul. Oh, but then this next verse speaks so clearly of what we're dealing with today. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it. That sin is nailed to the cross. And thank God I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Folks, do not neglect keeping your soul. Do not neglect the health of your soul. It's the most important part of you, and it's the only part of you that lasts forever, forever. The river is your soul, and you are its keeper. So, can I ask you this morning? Is it well with your soul? Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we, uh, we hear stories like this and it breaks us. I look at guys like Belshazzar and sometimes I see myself and these guys, kings like Nebuchadnezzar, and I can see a mirror of myself. We're so full of pride anger, lust, jealousy, deception, gossip, murmuring, jealousy, and pride. Our prayer, Lord, this morning is that you would break us from all of it, that you would cleanse us like only you can, and that, God, we would pay attention to the health of our souls. And, Lord, our prayer this morning is that before we leave this room, that you would move in our souls, move in our hearts. And then, God, help us to guard our hearts with all that we have and all that we are for the rest of our days, to give glory and honor and praise to you who commands it, but also, Lord, who blesses it. Lord, may the lives of people like Belshazzar be a great reminder to us all that we must stay broken, stay humble, stay before You, and take care of our souls. So, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm just going to ask you to stand, if you would. I ask God if He would just to sing that great old hymn again. It is well with my soul. And as we do, I just want to ask you to ask yourself: Is it well with your soul? Is it well with my soul? Do I have things that have crept in like the river and I haven't been a keeper like I need to and there's stuff in my life I need to clean out? Well, thank God Jesus can do that for you. Is, there like, is, that, is that you today? If it is, maybe you want to just come down the aisle, kneel at this altar and get things right. Pastors are here at the front. We can speak to you. We can give you encouragement. We can give you hope. We can point you to the cross. Whatever you need, this is your opportunity. Why don't you make a move now? Make a move you'll never regret. Get closer to Jesus.
1: Come Come on. Be the keeper
0: of your soul. Come on. whatever my love whatever it is Lord teach me to say may I praise you with all that I have all that I am may I praise you Lord it is well
1: to take this opportunity to thank you for joining us here today. You know, at Thomas Road Baptist Church, since our very beginning, back in 1956, we've been about one thing and one thing only, and that is to bring the message of hope that comes through Jesus Christ to the world. And today, my friends, we recognize we live in a world that's messed up. We live in a world that's full of division and conflict and pain and sorrow. But Jesus came to this world not to bring division and sorrow, but to bring joy, to bring peace to bring hope. And today, that's the message that we want to share with you. And if you're watching this and you've never had the opportunity of of connecting with Him at that level, of understanding what it is that Jesus came to do, then I encourage you and I want to let you know the greatest news you'll ever hear, and that's this. God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. In fact, He gave His only Son, Jesus, to come to this earth to die on the cross, to pay for your sins and for my sins, to do for us what we never could do for ourselves, What an amazing gift that really is. God loves you. Christ died for you. But three days later, he rose again. And when he came out of that grave, he gives us victory over sin, over Satan, over the grave. He gives us the hope for eternity. But according to God's words, very clear, what we must do is believe. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We must believe that he died and that he rose again. And if we do that, according to Romans 10:13, anyone, that means you, it means me, it means every person that has ever lived, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I encourage you today to recognize that hope that comes to Jesus. And if you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, do so today, believing that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said that he did, calling on his name, and it'll change everything. That is the message that we share. It's a message that we want to take to the entire world. And today, I would encourage you to connect with us, maybe even financially through a gift that you can help us to take this message around the world. I encourage you today to stand with us as we stand with truth, as we stand with hope to let the world know God loves.